please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John, the epistle of 1 John. As we be returning to our series on this epistle of 1 John. And in a moment we're going to be reading all of chapter 1, but also the first two verses of chapter 2, which we'll be looking at in our message in a little while. But let's look at what we've seen so far in this first epistle of John. In the first four verses, we see the summary, really, of the entire book. We're we're shown Jesus, who really is the foundation and the source of salvation, and who is really to be the one who encourages us if we are to have assurance of faith at all. And it's written with this purpose, verse 4 in chapter 1, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. That is the joy of assurance, of knowing that you know him. Of knowing that you know him. Knowing that you know him, who is that message spoken about in verse 5, which we looked at a few weeks ago. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. That is the message. It is declaring who God is and it confronts us in our sin, in our darkness, and in our rebellion. The pure being of God who is light and in him there is no shadow of turning at all. The sinner is confronted that he must flee darkness to follow this God of light. And then John for the next few verses, really probes the conscience. Uh, Really, is this consistent of you? The person who will be reading this. The person who was reading this in the first century when John wrote this first. If God is light, then, well, we will walk in light. That will be what characterizes our life. Our lives will show us If we follow light or darkness. Now while this book is about assurance. If you're going to look for a general theme in this entire letter. It is assurance. Knowing that you know. John does not want anyone reading this to have a false assurance. To really not be born again. But to think that you are. To deceive yourselves. So this morning, let us look at being pleasing before God. And that's going to be our title this morning. Pleasing before God. To have assurance, to have confidence that we, as his people, are pleasing before God. Are someone that God looks upon with favor, delight, and with joy. Put it another way, your sin has been dealt with. You are forgiven. And no longer is the wrath of God hanging over you. How is this even possible? Now if you're asking that question at this point, that is a good question to ask. How is this possible? Is this possible? Because we're sinners. We're sinners. Our sin needs to be dealt with. 
Now, the boys and girls, it's wonderful to see all the boys and girls who are here this morning. Praise God. It is an encouragement to all of our souls to see boys and girls in the worship service. But boys and girls, I'm wondering, do you have any nice teachers? You just have a favorite teacher. You have that one teacher, and when you're around that one teacher, you're acting very good or bad. Good, usually, isn't it? If you like a teacher normally, you're probably acting a little bit better. And then if you don't like the teacher, you might not be maybe the best. Is that true? Or was that just me in school? Maybe it was just me in school. Well, why is that? Why do we sometimes, we act better maybe around some people than around others? Maybe we don't want to disappoint that one teacher we have so much respect and we think they're fantastic. We think they're great. Maybe that person is a sports coach and you want to please them and get into the team. Maybe that's it. You don't want to disappoint them. It's not about getting in trouble with them. You want to do what is pleasing before that person. You don't want to disappoint them. How about at home? Boys and girls, if you love and respect your parents, are you going to obey them and follow them? Yeah. How much you love your parents will be seen and how much you want to, in some senses, please them. The older you get, it won't be about getting in trouble. What can I get away with? No, no, I love my mommy and daddy. I respect them. I want to honor them. Honor your father and your mother. The fifth commandment. So think about it like this. It's not about what we can get away with. What is pleasing before that person we love? Now, do we wish this with God? To do what is pleasing before God. To be pleasing before God. And you say, but I am a sinner. That question is popping up in your mind again. How can God take pleasure in me? How can he delight in me? Great question. Only in Christ. Only in Christ. By walking with him and knowing him. So let us read now God's holy and infallible words. 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. I'm going to read down to the first two verses of chapter 2. Let us hear God's holy word. That which was from the beginning. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon. And our eyes and our hands have handled. Concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Our text this morning will be those last two verses we read. My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. Now earlier, we spoke about pleasing before people. Pleasing before people. And that can be a problem, can't it? That can be a problem. What pleases people today is not what pleased people 20 years ago or probably even five years ago. We live in a changing world. Attitudes are changing. So to be seeking to please people first, first, is not wise. For one, you're going to be miserable. It's an impossible task to please everyone. But what about pleasing the one who never changes? We just talked about one impossible task, which is to please everyone. You can't. But to please the one with that perfect holy and righteous standard. Oh, that's even more impossible in and of our own selves. He is unchanging. And when we look at God, at his perfect standard, that's when we can struggle with assurance. How can I be a Christian and do, insert that sin that you probably would dare never share with your best friend. Something secret. Something that is plaguing you and your conscience. But one did live a perfect life in our place. And he also died in our place. Taking our wrath in our place. Living a perfect life in our place. So that when God looks upon us, if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, if we are in the light, then we can say with true and sure confidence we are pleasing before God through Christ. So come this morning, brothers and sisters, that you may know this morning, if you're struggling in this area, that you too are pleasing before God. At the beginning of this chapter, verse 2, there's a tender opener, which brings us to our our first point. The first point is a purpose to prevent. A purpose to prevent, number one. And at the beginning of this first verse, it says this, My little children. My little children. Now in Greek, it's just two words. My children, it could also be as well. It's a very tender 
way of addressing someone. It's a very loving and intimate way of talking to someone. Jesus himself talked to his disciples using these exact two Greek words when he said, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me as I have said to the Jews, Why, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. That's in John 13, 33. John tenderly addresses those he's writing to. And he gives the purpose of why he's writing this. Because he knows, most likely, this will be a hard truth to look at. Look at the things he's just talked about. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. It's important then at that point, isn't it, to often to apply something encouraging at that point. My little children, these things I write to you. Why? He's giving the reason so that you may not sin. We're given another reason John wrote this. We, we, at the beginning, we talked about another reason he gave. In verse 4 of, the, of chapter 1, it says, And these things we write to you, that, or in order that, your joy may be full. But he gives another reason here. These things I write to you, verse 1 of chapter 2, so that you may not sin. And you might be asking a question, well, which is it? Is it to make us joyful? Is it so that we don't sin? Is it so that we have assurance of faith? Well, I'm confused at this point. Dear friends, it is all of them. All of them. And they're not competing reasons why John wrote this. All of them. They work together. John wrote all these things that they would have joy of the assurance of faith, knowing that they know God. But what can kill assurance? What can, if you're a genuine believer, a true believer in union with Christ, but what can kill your assurance? Not your salvation, but your assurance. How about stumbling into darkness? How about falling into serious and embarrassing sin that brings dishonor and reproach upon the name of Christ? Dear friends, generally, and I say this generally, low levels of assurance go hand in hand with low levels of obedience. And that is one of the main reasons today so many struggle with assurance, I believe. It's not the only reason, but there are other reasons. But it's a major reason. Low levels of obedience can only really lead to low levels of true assurance. Now I say true assurance because there can be people who are not truly born again, religious on the outside. To all intents and purposes, they're born again from, from what anybody else can see. But they don't struggle with assurance. But they don't have true assurance. What causes a true believer to doubt salvation? Sin. Now John is writing this letter so that you'll have greater assurance, greater joy. So that your joy may be full. 
And John is writing this letter so that you would not struggle in this area because if this joy increases in your heart, dear friends, then you'll find so many other things in your life. It'll be like an overflowing effect will resolve themselves. The joy of the Lord would be your strength as you face that hostile world that has no love for Christ. That your walk would be filled with joy and light and it would bring you away from what? Sin. I write to you so that you may not sin. Another way of saying it, that you would grow. Let's think of a very simplistic way of saying, how do we grow? We be more like Christ. And what's another way of saying that? We sin less. Now, we're never going to be perfect in this world. But we grow and be changed, and we hate our sin more and more. Now, John in this letter will say things that will make you think, what I do does not matter. This is all God. This is all of grace. And then a sentence later to challenge you. That if you think, well, it doesn't matter how I live. He wants to challenge you. He wants to challenge you. He wants to drive you away from sin that would cause you to stumble and cause you to doubt that you truly belong to Christ himself. When we do sin, we could think this. Look back to verse 6 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. So when we fall into serious sin, and and a believer can fall into serious sin. I think we forget this at times. A believer can fall into serious sin. But then you start asking yourself, well, is that me? Do I walk in darkness because I did this? And this is where the doubts can come in. Do I truly walk in darkness? Or perhaps I'm worse. Maybe I'm like the person in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin and we deceive ourselves, am I deceived? Am I that person who doesn't see his sin as seriously as he ought to? And it's very tormenting. I personally know people who go through very tormenting experience with this. We may think I am saved from hell and If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are saved from hell. But we have not been brought out of this fallen world yet. We still see and we still suffer the consequences of sin. Even Solomon, even someone as amazing, as as wise as Solomon, through his marriages to multiple women, to foreign women who are pagans, it drew his heart, even Solomon's heart, Away from God. And what happened? There was consequences for the sin of Solomon in this world. He didn't go to hell. His sins were atoned for, paid for. But the consequences of his sin went beyond his life. And the kingdom was rent in two. Rehoboam getting the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was a terrible example for the northern kingdom. Sin has consequences. The dangerous thing we can think of, I am saved, it does not matter anymore. No friends, you may be saved from hell, but your sin has consequences in this world. There will come a time when Jesus will return, and there will be no more consequences from sin. But that day has not yet 
come. It will come. One of the last blessings we have through sin in this world is a loss of assurance. We talked about this. And, and in chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says this. Chapter 18 is excellent on assurance of faith. It says this. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation. Divers ways, that's different ways, shaken, diminished, intermitted, as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin, which wounded the conscience and grieveth the spirit. Let's think about one or two examples of this. Is it possible for a true believer in Jesus Christ to fall into the sin of being drunk. Yes it is. Is it possible for a true believer to fall into the horrendous sin of adultery? Yes it is. Now when that person reads in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11. Paul writes this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, nor will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. See, the thing is, we read that and go, well, I fell into that sin, or whatever the case may be. But Paul says this, but such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Sin will cause you to struggle and doubt that you truly belong to him. The closer you walk with him, the less you will tend to struggle. And again, I say tend, we all have different personalities. There will be faithful believers who do have a high level of obedience who will still struggle with assurance. The Lord has a purpose for these things. It's not always going to be identical for every single person, but this is more of a general rule. But why does this verse say this? The verse does say this. Uh, It's very clear. Adulterers and and drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. It, it, It has to be saying something. It has to be warning about something. If you live and follow these sins, unrepentant, continuing them, there's no misery in your life. You're quite happy to continue in them. You may may not like getting caught. You may not like the public stigma about it. But at the end of the day, you are addicted to these sins. Then, dear friends, you are lost But it does not mean a true believer cannot fall into these sins. Now if you do, the Lord will chasten all whom he loves. But it's a painful experience. And that joy will fade. And it's painful to get back to it. Assurance of faith can be like the most delicate flower. Easy to trample. But takes much nourishing. And growth over a long time period of time sin will make the true believer's life miserable sin will make the false convert's heart rejoice that's the difference 
And I know as I go through these things, the, it will be the wrong people who will doubt their salvation going through this. It's always going to be the person with the sense of conscience who has, probably should never worry about their salvation. But at the same time, we warn against sin. Sin, even if you're a true believer, will crush your assurance. So that's a purpose to prevent. John is seeking to prevent them from sinning. Number two, a perception of the problem. A perception of the problem or to see the problem. It says in verse 1, These things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, if anyone sins, your sin must be dealt with. And you must, before you can ever deal with anything, must see that there's a problem. If you don't see that there's a problem, there's no hope. You're not going to go to the doctor unless you see there's a problem. You're not going to seek the medicine unless you get that scary diagnosis. Why would you? If anyone, if anyone sins, well, it brings us back to verse 10. Verse 10 of the previous chapter. If we, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Look, I'm writing this. Don't make excuses for your sin. I'm writing this to drive you away from your sin. Away from darkness toward the light. But if, if you do sin, and we all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there is medicine. There is healing. Balm. Sin is displeasing before God. It is displeasing before God. And you have to see that. Above all else, see, the worst thing we can do with the gospel is we want to escape the mere punishment. The mere punishment of hell. Nobody wants to go to hell, do they? Rather than seeing it is at its core, what makes it so evil, it is what is displeasing before God. That's what is wrong with sin. It is something that is displeasing to the one who is good. Who is love. Who is light. And this is darkness. Sin is darkness. You have to see that. It says in Isaiah 44 verse 18. They do not know nor understand. For he has shut their eyes. So that they cannot see. And their hearts so that they cannot understand. If you cannot see your sin here this morning, dear friend, you are in great danger. The person who is least affected by this is in great danger. The person who never worries, in some cases, about their sin, that they see that it's displeasing before God, is in great danger. Imagine you have broken the law. Perhaps you've gone through, you've broken the speed limit and you did not know it. In fact, you purposely shut your eyes to the fact that you broke that speed limit and you start to get letters in the post calling you to come to court to answer for your breaking of that law. But you said, that, that's definitely not me. Oh, no, 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 that's not me. What happens when you don't turn up to court. What will the judge think of the person who will not face 
the judge and deal with law-breaking. Contempt of court, perhaps. Would the punishment not get worse at that point? Friend, if you cannot see your sin, this is God's judgment. I've been, I remember once witnessing to somebody years ago and they were saying, well, it can't be that bad. Well, we'll see after I die. I was saying, well, there's, there's hell after you die if you don't know Christ. And the person was saying, well, it's not that bad now. But dear friends, to not see your sin is God's wrath and displeasure here in this world. To love sin, to be given over to sin, is God's wrath and displeasure in this world. It says this in Romans 1.28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Part of God's judgment, part of God's showing of his displeasure is he gives you to your sin. But if he delights in you, what will happen? He will chasten you and bring you away from your sin. Bring you toward the light. It says in Hebrews 12 verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Just as we will discipline our own children if we love them. If we love them. We want to drive them away from that which is evil and wrong. And we want to lovingly instruct them. Chastening them. Scourging them when necessary. But now you need a... So you've seen the problem. We're sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. We need a representative. We need somebody to stand in our place before God. Because we cannot. And that brings us to our third point. A pleading of perfection. A pleading... Of perfection. It says this in verse 1 again, the second half of verse 1. And if anyone sins, that's all of us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, sometimes if you're watching on television or different things, you might see these famous celebrities getting in trouble with the law. And sometimes you'll kind of look at their sentence and kind of go, well, if, well, if I did that, my sentence would be a lot longer than that. Now, there might be different reasons for this, but one of the reasons is they can get the best representation that money can buy. They might get a good solicitor, a good barrister, in other countries, a good lawyer. This word here that we have here in our text, an advocate. An advocate is kind of a legal term. Somebody represents you before the judge. A good and professional representation. It's one of the reasons why their case go so well now who may present a case and present it before this the judge who is God can anyone do it can anyone in any court just represent either themselves 
or just get somebody else. It wouldn't be wise, would it? They need to be qualified, trained in the law. They need to pass certain standards to be able to approach before God. But who can come before God? Can a mere creature come before God and speak to Almighty God, the Father? Only His Son. True God. He can approach before His Father as He is one with the Father. But He must also be one of us. One of the seed of Abraham. One of the seed of Adam. A man. We'll turn briefly to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 to 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and raise those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Notice how that made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be true God to approach to be that mediator between God and man, the man. God, Christ Jesus. Now, he's like us in every way, but not a sinner. Not a sinner. Born under the law. Obeying every point. He is the second Adam. The first Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. And our second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says this in Romans 5 verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And who is that type of him who was to come? The Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 15, For if by the one man's offense many died, one man's offense, many died, much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of, of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. So there's two possibilities. Before the throne of God, either you have Adam, the first Adam, as your representative, as your advocate. Or you have the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're the only two <clears throat> possibilities. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all should be made. Alive. He is that qualified one. Now, at the same time, a good lawyer, a good solicitor, a good barrister cannot get you off of your sin. The judge in which we're going before, he knows everything. There's no hiding like there might be with a human representative. 
The judge knows you, but he also knows Jesus Christ, the righteous. He knows his perfect record. You can't get off on your own record. We have sinned in thought and word and deed. But Christ not only offers to represent you, he also offers to represent you with his righteousness to your account. And so when you're coming to the day, that day when you breathe your last breath and you stand before the throne of, of, of grace, it won't be because of you. It won't be because of your life. It'll be because of Jesus Christ if you have looked to him and to him alone. If you've seen that you're a sinner and you've trusted in him, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You have an advocate, another way of saying it, toward the Father. Isn't that wonderful, dear friends, this morning? Us being pleasing before God has nothing to do with your best performance here. It has everything to do with Christ's finished work. And our final point, verse 2, we're going to be looking at a pleasant aroma for a people. A pleasant aroma for a people. So we've looked at a purpose to prevent, prevent from sinning. A perception of the problem, that is sin. A pleading of perfection. The pleading is Christ's righteousness. And now a pleasant aroma. Something that is pleasing before God for a people. It says in verse 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ is that propitiation. Now what does that word propitiation mean? Now this word, it's not a very common word even in the Bible, but it means this. It is one who appeases wrath. Turns away wrath and turns it into grace and favor. He paid it all. Jesus said this, and this is from John 19.30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And it's only because of that death. Of the Son of God, true man. He turns that wrath that we would deserve, that would hang over our heads like a sword, ready to execute. But grace and mercy and peace is found only in Jesus Christ, our propitiation. He is our wrath appeasing sacrifice. That's what the word means. He is that sacrificial lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That wrath appeasing sacrifice. The instrument by which God's justice could be appeased. says this in Romans 3.25. Whom, this is Christ, God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness. And then it talks about how he was bruised in Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Or it could also be translated to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isn't that amazing? His death. His sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God. Because of his perfect law keeping. There's delight. Even even here this, this morning. God can be pleased to dwell among his people. Why? Because of Jesus Christ who is our propitiation. This is the only reason. Without that. God would see us as sinners. God would see us as an object of wrath. It says in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This appeasing sacrifice is for all, all in Jesus Christ. Now, the second half of this verse, I think it's important that we look at this as well. He himself, is the, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Hmm. Now what does that mean? For the whole world. Now, we've dealt with that word propitiation. It means to, basically to turn away wrath, to look favorably upon a group. What does this mean, the whole world? Could it mean, can it mean, that all the sins of every single person upon the earth has been atoned for? It cannot. It cannot. But what does it mean? Now, in the Bible, if you look through the Bible, the word world means lots of different things depending on the context. It can mean every single person in the world. It can also mean the fallen world. It can mean the created world. It can mean the entire universe. It just depends on the immediate context. And sometimes the word world is used beyond certain borders. Not for our little group only. But beyond this, for all the world, whoever will look to Jesus Christ. And is there evidence to support this? Actually in verse 7 of chapter 2 it says this. This is uh, of 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. And there's a strong indication that this is really referring to probably mainly Jewish people in the first century. This is nothing new, I'm telling you. Well, if it's to Gentiles, it is a very new thing that he is saying to them. No, no, this is something you've heard from the beginning. Not for our sins only but for the sins of the whole world. Beyond ourselves, all who will look to Christ alone. And isn't that wonderful? Not for our sins only, but for all in this town who will look to him and find refuge in him. He becomes their advocate and comes into this one people whom Jesus has infallibly paid for their sins, for a specific people. We have to think which is more encouraging. Jesus Christ infallibly 
saves those whom were given to him by his father. Or, some believe that this atonement, this propitiation is for everybody. But what about those people in hell? The Lord's sacrifice is perfect. Appeasing and wiping away the sin of all those it was intended for. Jesus said this when he prayed to his Father in heaven. I pray for them. This is whom the Father has given them. I do not pray for for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of his people. Given to him. By his father. Dear friends this morning. Do you know if you are pleasing before God? Do you know this? And you say well based upon what? Your life? None of our lives are good enough. To be pleasing before God. You have sin. And sin brings the displeasure of God. But. Dear friends, we can find joy and peace in God. If we have delight in him through Jesus Christ, dear friends, he will also find delight in us, even this morning, as we gather together, as we come later to worship before him. Let us think about that. A pleasant aroma, a sweet-smelling savor going toward heaven. Somebody the Lord, the infinite one, the king of heaven and earth, delights him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Amen.